Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This is our league, and this is your league. From the 55-yard line on CFL America Radio and the Sports History Network. This is a league of A's and B's. It's green and red and gold and black and blue. This is a league with two official languages and many unofficial languages. It's East versus West, wheat versus iron, love versus hate. This is a league where superstars are extraordinary and ordinary at the same time. It's a league of ice, of fog, of mud and wind. And for one Sunday in November, it's the nation's glue. This is a league as diverse as a country, a league of Jacksons and Kwongs, Johnsons, Moscas, O'Shea's, and Haji Razulis. This is his league, his league, her league, their league, and their league. It's my league, and it's your league. This is our league. Welcome to the 55-yard line on this beautiful Chicago Saturday morning where I'm joined by Rob Vanstone of the Regina Leader Post and Don Charbon of the Third Down Gamble podcast to talk Rough Riders history. Uh, Scott's un- unable to join us today, but he'll be back for our next show. Guys, hey, thanks for joining us, and it's nice to see all of you in anticipation of the new season here in just a few weeks. And Rob, I know you've got to, uh, you're going to be heading to training camp pretty soon. Yeah, in about an hour. So uh, it's nice to be able to say that I'm uh, able to go there. It's it's been a long time. It's <laughs> it's hard. I mean, 600 days between uh, going to Mosaic, going to the press box at Mosaic Stadium. There's still a seating chart in the press box at the stadium for the West Final of November 17th, 2019. It's like a time capsule that's that's thumbtacked to the to the bulletin board in the uh, in the uh, press box, and it's uh, it's really a reminder of how uh, much things have changed. I mean, my, um, you know, one of the people on the seating chart, seat 22 is Warren Woods, a, a great friend of ours from, uh, from CJME Radio in Regina, Rocco Radio in Saskatchewan, and Woodsy uh, died of COVID this past January. And so I look at that chart every time and see seat 22 and say, hey, Woodsy, uh, my mom died about three weeks after that game. So I look at that seating chart, and I think, man, life was so much different back then. You know, I was chatting with Woodsy, my mom was around, and I didn't have type 2 diabetes. There was no such thing as a pandemic. And I weighed 108 pounds more than I do now. So it's like, but that thing is still thumbtacked to the to the bulletin board. I don't know why I got on that tangent, but I, I take a look at that every day. And it's kind of a daily reality check for me and tells me how grateful I am to, to be able to go. 
Yeah. Wow. And, you know, I know up, up there, up where you guys are at, I mean, football to me, it's, I'm very envious living in Chicago, even though we're big football fans down here, up where you guys are at, the Rough Riders are part of the really, truly the fabric of the community. And to not have football for how many months are we're, we're going on what 18 months of the pandemic, I think to not have football, to not, to not be able to really talk football has been hard, I think, for all of us who are CFL fans, but especially up there. Well, if you look at it um, in a lot of areas of the country, they haven't been deprived of their main sporting franchise. If you look at the National Hockey League, all those teams got going again. So if you live in Alberta, Manitoba, BC, uh, Quebec, Ontario, the big team has played during the pandemic period. The Rough Riders are to us what the Canadians are to Montreal, the Leafs, Maple Leafs are to Toronto, the Canucks are to Vancouver, et cetera. We haven't had that. So I think the, the sense of deprivation and the withdrawal has been exacerbated in, in this case. And having said that, I'm not going to look up the meaning of the word exacerbated. Don? <laughs> I can't agree more. The, one, the quirkiest thing that we did here with our podcast is we started just after the 2019 season. We've been going at it for a year and a half without a single no game to discuss. And we're just stoked that uh, it's not that many weeks away and the Rough Riders and the other eight teams are finally hitting the field. And uh, I know with training camp up there, Rob, you're heading over there now. But And you guys during this have also had heat waves, fires, and temperatures that are basically record-breaking up there. So to have this kind of football coming back has got to be a nice distraction from a lot of the bad news up there too. Well, just generally what we do for a living as sports writers is a distraction or should be a distraction from the downside of life. And, you know, when I went into journalism school, I wanted nothing to do with news and news wanted nothing to do with me. So it was a pretty amicable uh, arrangement there. I just, I didn't want to deal with crime. I didn't want to deal with death. Um, I didn't want to talk to politicians. <laughs> and uh, to, to me, it just seemed like a nice way to, to make a living without having to, to, to wallow in the stuff that I really didn't think would be pleasant. And uh, now we don't, we have our share of stories in sports that are, that are about subject matter that's unpleasant. But generally, one of my old journalism, journalism professors used to call, refer to it as Toyland, working in the sports department. And I never really disagreed with it. I think there are some serious things that can be done there and some good, th good things that can be done. But it's still, I'm get, making a living. I'm getting paid to go to sporting events that I would be at anyway. I grew up going to Regina Pats games. I grew up going to Ryder games. And now for a living, I go to Regina Pats games and Ryder games. I mean, it's borderline criminal what I do. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, it's, it's, then, when, then when you're, and I love what I do. It's, it, I don't have any hobbies that I enjoy as much as my job. So then to not be able to do that for for months and months and months or just get little tastes or little hints of, of of actually being able to write sports and then to be able to just turn the page and just go right on back uh i'm i'm more mindful than ever about how lucky i am to be able to do this and uh it's kind of rejuvenating in a way when you're 57 years old and you're approaching things with sort of the same mindset as as uh, as as existed when you're 12, 13, 14, 15. I'm going to training camp now with the same enthusiasm and curiosity and wide-eyed awe, gray-haired awe, mind you, what hair remains, that I had in 1973, 1976, 78, you know, 81. That's, it's neat when you can kind of reignite that and realize that's still inside you, even though you're kind of a 
I'm, I'm a relic by, by uh, all standards, except those which are geologic. So. But and, you're right, uh, Greg. Oh, sorry, Greg. But oh, no, right. no, go ahead. The, uh, go the ahead. weather has been unbelievable this year. And when I look out the window right now, the smoke is just billowing through the sky. We're getting fires to the north of us. I don't know if they get as far as Regina to the smoke, but the smoke hate. here is, yeah, it's accurate here. Like you cannot go outside without smelling. Oh, wow. And of course, temperatures, as you alluded, were over 30 Celsius most days, which without rain is just really exacerbating the situation. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and in talking about the writers and about your fandom and we'll stick on the good news then and keep the, <laughs> keep, keep the, keep the, keep reality away from us, at least, you know, try it as much for the hour, but you guys are both lifelong. You guys have lived up in Saskatchewan all your lives, correct? Yeah. Uh, it's March 30th, 64 to uh, today. With, okay. a, with the exception of 101 days in Lloydminster, Lloydminster, Saskatchewan on an internship. So okay. You don't and remember it all at all up there. I'll guarantee you that. So for, for both of you, when did, when did your love of the Rough Riders start? I mean, for me, my pro football love started in 77 when I saw Bob Greasy wearing the same horn rim glasses that I, I had. <laughs> and, uh, and it's been nonstop ever since. How about for both of you guys? me, it was probably the – my first memory of football was when I was about five, six years old, watching the Grey Cup. And that's when I thought, this is amazing. There's a team from my province that's playing in the championship game. I, I can't believe this. So immediately I was drawn to the Rough Riders at that moment. Of course, they lost that game, and they would lose a few more through the 70s. But it was really exciting for me to know that – my home has a team in this league. And from that moment on, I was hooked. It was a different world then too, because I think there were, it was a much easier entry, entry point for Don and I than it would have been um, today. I mean, if you're growing up today, yeah, the Rough Riders are here, but they're having a demographic issue and their crowds, I think, and those of this in the CFL tend to um, trend toward the, the older. So me. And, um, but, when we were growing up, there was there there were two TV stations. We didn't have cable television. We had CBC and we had Channel Two and Channel Nine in Saskatchewan. Uh, there was there was you know radio stations, but um, I remember I used to have to go to the I couldn't wait to go to the magazine stand or books bookstore like the week after NFL games were played, so I could actually read the summaries of NFL games to see uh, uh, to see how many yards you know John Keyworth rushed for for the Denver Broncos. There was just there was none of the uh, you know we we didn't know we didn't uh, we had we got one hockey game on TV a week. You didn't know who got the goals and assists and penalties until you picked up the paper the next day and read the summaries. Uh, so I think that the attention paid to local sports was a lot more intense and a lot more focused. We you know we didn't we didn't have little phones to play with. We didn't have video games. We were there. We didn't have an infinite number of channels. We didn't have live streaming. Uh, growing up in Regina, we had uh, we had electricity and a phone. <laughs> It was at the top of a pole, like in, on Green Acres, and uh, and uh, we had uh, the Pats and the Riders, and so I think I think it was a lot from a from a, the standpoint of a fan. It was just it was there weren't wasn't really anything that to impede being intensely interested in 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 football. And I've told this story several times, but um, I was born in 1964, and I went to my first Rider game in 1963. 
because my mom was pregnant and she went to every game. And so that, that was, you know, mom took me to every game. And uh, so that, that was my entry point into it. You know, my mom was the, uh, was an ardent fan and, and uh, my dad was the organist of Regina Pats games. I was really lucky. My parents introduced me to, to the Rough Riders and the Pats. And that's pretty much what became, become my career or what there is of it. And uh, so you just, it's different now. You know, I just, I think it's more challenging for a young person to, to really get into it. Cause you do, you walk around town, you see lots of kids wearing Patrick Mahomes, you know, jerseys or et cetera, et cetera. Uh, back then it was just, okay, you're going to wear a green Jersey. And it's just a matter of, does it have 23 or 34 on it? You know, Ron Lancaster or George Reed, you never saw NFL stuff back when, uh, when, when I was a kid, the NFL stuff was Canton Bulldogs. So maybe that's a <laughs> bad example. Well, when I was How in Quebec, I, I would, when I, you know, just talking about that, when I was in Quebec about my wife and I were about 20 years ago. And the one thing I wanted when we were in Quebec city, I wanted to get a um, Alouette. I wanted to get something from the CFL and I go into the sports shop and it's all NFL. And in one little corner, they're selling a couple Alouette's hats an Alouette's jersey, and that was it. So it's just, it, it, it was frustrating for me as an American going to Canada and seeing everything from back home up there with the NFL. And as much as I love the NFL and I love my Cardinals, I'm in Canada. I want something from the CFL. And um, history-wise, the Rough Riders have been there for so long, and they are the four, if, if I've done my math correctly and I've done my research correctly, I think they're the fourth oldest professional football team in North America. Am I correct? Man, I'd never put them in the, in the, I've never tiered them before, but um, when I covered the 1910 Rough Riders, I don't recall <laughs> many other football teams in the time. So I caught well, you there. There were no 1910 Rough Riders. They were the Regina Rugby Club. Club. Sorry. <laughs> they didn't become the Rough Riders until 14 years later. Oh, uh, okay. Regina Rough Riders at that point. Okay. Here's the, here's the head coach, Ted Ritter. Um, so. Yeah, kind of like the uh, Chicago Cardinals. They were the Morgan Athletic Club, and they um, they were over here on our south side and over in the Inglewood area, which unfortunately is known for um, less desirable things. Like, unfortunately, on a weekly basis, it's the area where you get a lot of shootings and everything. But um, history-wise, you know, living in Chicago, so much football history is here. And up in Regina, there's just so much history there for the Canadian game. You talked about the greats, Ron Lang. Um, yeah, Ron, Ron Lancaster. Um, who are some, who are your favorites growing up in terms of the guys that you idolized? Don? Ron Lancaster, by far. Okay. He was the quarterback. He was the only quarterback as I was growing up that was the quarterback for the Rough Riders through my you know, junior years, right up through my teen years. And in fact, it was quite a shock to the system when I saw that he wasn't going to play anymore. I just couldn't envision this football team without him at the helm. Uh, Lancaster, I love the way he played the game. He, he was called the little general. He, uh, he could roll out. He could throw off the run. He commanded the field out there. And back when he played, of course, he would be calling a lot of the offensive plays. He'd get certainly cues from the uh, bench. But a lot of times, Lancaster would look across the line, see if they were facing a zone or a man-to-man coverage, and go for it with a, with a quick change in the call. I, I thought, and the other thing about Lancaster, he was so personable. He was always willing to meet with people, talk with people, give you his time. 
And I hear so many famous stories of the bus waiting for him because he's out talking to fans. Well, if, if, if somebody wrote a letter to Ron Lancaster asking for an autograph, he would not only send the autograph back, but he would write a letter to them thanking them for asking. Who does that? Wow. Wow. I, that's amazing. That's, that's something. I only know one person that's done that, but unfortunately that person sent it to the wrong John Danks down in, in um, was a pitcher for the White Sox and actually sent it to a friend of mine. My friend obviously signed the, signed the autograph, sent it back and, you know, along with the signed baseball, <laughs> but no, nobody does that anymore. Um, at least not, not that I know of. It's, it's rare to see. You know, growing up, I, I worship Ronnie and George and, and still do and always will. Um, the one, the player that ultimately really connected with me, unlike any other, uh, was a receiver by the name of Joey Walters. He played the American fans might remember, remember him from the United States Football League. He played for the Washington Federals for two years and then the Orlando Renegades and was one of the best players in the history of the USFL. Uh, but he played here from 77 to 82. And I just liked him right away. I liked the way he played. And um, in 1981, he spent the winter here doing public appearances for the team. And he was at a local shopping mall and I, I heard or saw somewhere that he was going to be making an appearance. And I always liked him, but I, I went over there just to kind of say hi to him. And I stood by the ice cream stand at the mall for 45 minutes and chatted with him. And then he apologized for taking up so much of my time. And uh, I just became the most ridiculous Joey Walters fan and still am. My touch football jersey will always be number 17 for Joey Walters. Um, he's become a, you know, a great friend. And uh, that's the beauty of the CFL as well. People that you, that you absolutely love as players you can get to know them. If it's, even if it's just an interaction and getting an autograph, you can get that autograph. There's no, well, with COVID, there's some walls now, but ordinarily just go to practice and call the player's name after practice. They'll come over and chat and sign an autograph and pose for a picture. And, and I think that's the strength of the CFL. And that's what's been particularly endearing with the Rough Riders is that you don't really feel like necessarily like there, that there's a real divide between the fans and the players. You feel like you're watching friends play. You're watching people that you've gotten to know you know, maybe briefly, maybe, you know, perhaps, uh, uh, you know, to a greater depth. And, and uh, that's, that, that's always been part of it for me. It's just uh, the, the intimacy of the fan, fan player relationship. If you're a, like, I love the Denver Broncos, absolutely love the Denver Broncos, but I resign myself to the fact that I will never meet Peyton Manning. I won't meet John Elway. You know, I did interview Steve Watson once, my all-time favorite Bronco, number 81 out of Temple. But, uh, you know, that's, that's a rarity. Uh, there's, you know, if you're, if you're an NHL fan, it used to be easy to go to an NHL game and get autographs afterwards. You just stand outside the dressing room. Well, now they, now there's just the new, with the new arenas, everything's so, so hermetically sealed. You don't get anywhere near your favorite athletes. And I'm sure it's pretty much the baseball. It's a little different because you can still get some autographs at the park, you know, before, you know, or in spring training, but NBA, good luck, good luck getting LeBron's autograph, etc. CFL, if you want to get, autographs you want to chat with the players all you have to do is go it's not very hard and that's what strengthens these relationships and and still makes them something that, that that we cherish after all these years of following it the the cfl when i try to describe to people what cfl teams are like and what the fandom is like now i to be honest i've never been to a cfl game in fact the last time i was in canada was about 20 years ago but i've always loved watching canadian ball whether it be on tape whether it be clips but when the 
the the game started being broadcast down here and unless you lived on a in a border town like Detroit or say Seattle you really couldn't or even Buffalo you couldn't really watch CFL games live so i've when i've watched the games now i get and again, reading reading the history of i've been knee deep reading the history of the league i get a feeling that the CFL and especially teams like up in Saskatchewan and Winnipeg and Edmonton, I'll use those three as my example, remind me very much of what the Baltimore Colts were like to Baltimore back in the 50s and 60s. Would I be off base on that comparison? Reading what I have of the Baltimore Colts and about Johnny Unitas and about uh, Raymond Berry and about the relationship, uh, not always the smoothest one, uh, they, they, the Colts had some struggles, especially you know, obviously ending up, ending up in Indianapolis. It's, so it was a struggle there. Um, kind of an older stadium that just they kept just patching up. Um, when I think of Johnny Unitas, I think of Ron Lancaster. When I think of Raymond Barry, I think of Hugh Campbell, who was basically uh, Ronnie's Raymond Barry. Um, you know, just a not the fastest receiver in the world, but really smart, great moves and caught everything. And and uh, um, Ron Lancaster's idol growing up in Pennsylvania was Johnny Unitas. And he got to meet Johnny Unitas in 1975 when he came to Regina for a sports banquet. And Ronnie was like, Ronnie was with, around Johnny Unitas like we were around Ronnie, just in total awe. And, uh, and you know, just re- having read what I've read about Johnny Unitas, I just, that's, that's, that's the United States version of Ronnie with fewer interceptions. But uh, um, I just... I'm intrigued by those old Colts teams because they just they just remind me of 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 uh, the kind of the rider teams that I watched growing up, and uh, it's uh, I think there's some really really good parallels there. Not not the most glamorous market in the world, and not the nicest stadium, and and a quarterback who was kind of um, and, a, and a great and a great receiver who were kind of dismissed early in their careers, and uh, you know Ronnie's Ronnie. He's known for a lot of the, for all the interceptions he threw. Um, but I think John Unitas' first pass, I think, was intercepted by J.C. Caroline in return for a touchdown. So um, <laughs> there's that interception too. But Rod, Johnny Unitas was kind of written off, and Hugh Campbell was supposed to be too slow. And they became icons with this franchise. And I think they're, they're, there's the same parallel there with uh, John Unitas and, and Raymond Berry. And uh, Steve Myra, who kicked the, the game-winning field goal, or the game tying field goal in the uh, 1958 uh, NFL championship game uh, ended up playing for the Rough Riders in the early 1960s. So there's the, I did not know that. So there's a little bit of, um, (laughs) and Bob Shaw was a, um, was a, was a scout with the, uh, with the, with, with Baltimore at the time. And he spied on the New York giants um, practice. He got on, on top of a, building outside Yankee Stadium and it was basically the first version of Spygate. He got a, got some binoculars, went up to the roof and watched the New York Giants practice and and took the information back to the Colts and their coaching staff. Frank Gifford even mentioned it in his book about the 58 game. And uh, Bob Shaw ended up coaching the Rough Riders in 1963 and 1964. He was the first coach that Ron Lancaster had. So there's a couple of links there to the, the, uh, to the 1958 uh, classic between the wow. Giants and the Wow. 
Well, and that's what I tell people in the States. There's so much Canadian football history and American football history are really intertwined with names just like you've mentioned. Oh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting when you really dig into it. There's, there's, uh, uh, you know, Bill Belichick's dad, Steve, was a guest coach at Ryder Camp in the late 50s. Um, you know, Gino Capaletti, I think the leading scorer or second, one of the leading scorers in the history of the American Football League was um, was cut by the Riders in the late 50s. The, the, the Denver Broncos' first quarterback was uh, was Frank Trapeuse, who played for the Rough Riders, once upon a time the Chicago Cardinals. Um, uh, their first head coach was Frank Filchok, a former Rider head coach and quarterback. Their first general manager was Dean Griffing, formerly of the Rough Riders. So there's a lot of really neat links when you uh, when you dive into the CFL NFL. And once upon a time, it was a pretty competitive bidding uh, procedure yeah. because uh, a lot of, especially if you look in the early '50s, there were a lot of NFL draft choices, first round NFL draft choices that ended up in Saskatchewan, ended up in the CFL because the CFL could pay more. And uh, it, it was it wasn't there wasn't the same difference monetarily and and and, and, and even prestige wise in, in the eyes of some of the players. You know, Bobby Marlowe was a, was a total stud out of the University of Alabama. And, uh, and um, he, was called, I think, he was called Bama's Bruising Bobby. Just an icon of the University of Alabama. He ended up coming to the Rough Riders and becoming a legendary player here. He didn't even go to the NFL. He was picked in the first round. Imagine that today, right? You know, Don Allard was picked fourth overall in the 1959 NFL draft and came up to Saskatchewan as a quarterback. Yeah, good. You're not going to see that anymore. And a little different these days. Yeah. Of course, yeah. 1959, quite the dubious year in Saskatchewan history because they had a four-foot two, two games. Yeah, they, yeah, they won. Trapp- he was involved with that, too. Yeah, he, he came back as a coach. And they ended up getting all their quarterbacks injured, and he ended up playing. And But they made the agreement. Uh, I think how it worked is because he returned was, was activated as a player beyond October 1st, uh, he was an ineligible player, but they made a deal for competitive reasons that they would still play. They would still play the game. Uh, and they, I think, they think they played Edmonton. They played Winnipeg. And, um, and Lost they, to Edmonton they, and beat Winnipeg. They beat Winnipeg, but it, by do, by prearrangement, they actually lost the game to Winnipeg. That's right. And Frank Chapuka was a quarterback in a game that didn't count. What's interesting there is that Ferd Burkett scored five touchdowns for the Riders in that, in that victory slash loss over Winnipeg, it's the most touchdowns ever scored by a Rough Rider in a game, which they won, but which goes down as a loss. But that record still stands. Most touchdowns in a game, Ferd Burkett versus Winnipeg, 1959. And the game was kind of didn't count. Wow. Wow. And I, missed the, I missed the days when people were named Ferd. <laughs> <laughs> well, in talking in the games and Let's talk some of the rivalries of the Riders. Now we've got, obviously, we've got the Blue Bombers, we've got Edmonton, we've got Calgary, everybody in the West. Winnipeg is the biggest rival for Saskatchewan, am I correct? Mm, I, now, I would be not, so. not in my 12-year-old brain, though. Don, okay. you, <laughs> when, I think yeah, I have the same recollections of the 70s and the Riders, at, Riders, Riders rivalry with Edmonton. Well, there's the mid-70s Saskatchewan Edmonton playing in a series of Western finals. But let's back a little bit earlier. It was Saskatchewan and Calgary that were just taking turns oh, going to the Grey Cup for yes. years. And uh, there was a famously a 14-2 and two, uh, Rough Rider team that didn't make the Grey Cup because of the toe of Larry Robinson. Yeah, I mean, Riders, 
you know, most victories they've ever had in a season, 14. And they, uh, and Calgary was nine and riders were 14 and two. Calgary was nine and seven, but Calgary wins the best of three West final in a blizzard uh, at uh, Taylor field with a 32 yard field goal that the wind kind of blew through the, through the goalposts. And that's kind of the riders history too. They just, they've got this, uh, they've had some of the most excruciating losses you can imagine. The 14 win team never got to the great cup. Calgary goes at nine and seven and loses to a Montreal team that won fewer games. You know, where's the justice in that? Well, and, uh, and, you uh, were, oh, you sorry. were saying the best of three series. So did they, they played, they played baseball like football series for playoffs. Yeah. Well, they played, they played three that. games in a week. They used to wow. play two game total points. Which in the semis, crazy. usually. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, so you could have, uh, truthfully, in the 60s, you could have five playoff games. And off, they often did. And, and then get to the Great Cup. And, and the East only played 14 regular season games back then, and the playoffs were shorter. So the West teams on cold, frozen fields would be beating each other's brains out, often the riders in Calgary, George Reed colliding with Wayne Harris. And by the time the West team got to the Grey Cup, they were so banged up, they had nothing left, and the East was just sitting there sipping tea. And uh, it was such a stupid format, and it went on for the longest time. And they, uh, up till nineteen, up till nineteen seventy one, they had best of playoffs. And the reason for stopping that, I imagine, would have been part of it just because it's it's just too much to ask of the body on a the weekly West, basis. The West was simply getting clocked at the Grey Cup. They were uh, okay. the East was winning again and again and again, and the West was playing more games all the time to get there. So I think they finally decided that, okay, enough's enough. I mean, revenue aside, we've got to start winning some Grey Cups. Gotcha. Well, how do you the league where some teams play 14 games and some teams play 16? <laughs> well, again, that, that goes back to the history of the CRU and then the CFA and then the CFL, which is the two conferences really had nothing to do with each other until 1961. Other than playing in Grey Cup games, they, they wouldn't play. And in 61, they got the partial interlock. And this is where the 14 and the 16 come about because you've got three games against common opponents in the West and then one game against the East. There's your 16. That's four times three plus four. And in the East, you got three times three plus five, giving you the 14 because you're playing five Western teams. And they didn't bother with trying to make it even because they were only going to meet in the Grey Cup anyway. Who cared? Yeah. And it was interesting too because they'd the Riders, for example, would go down East and they would play, you know, um, Hamilton on a Tuesday and Ottawa on a Thursday. <laughs> I mean, honestly, um, and that went on for the longest time, and nobody, nobody ever thought anything of it. With with thirty three player rosters, um, it's an amazing uh, contrast to what happens today. When when teams say, I laugh when teams, you know, players say, "Oh, we only have five days between games or whatever." Jeez. Oh, I mean, there were times they didn't have time for – there were years when they didn't have time for a practice between games. It was play on a Tuesday, recuperate on a Wednesday, play again on a Thursday or a Friday. Yeah, and back then, the, the CFL was in pretty good financial shape. So in terms of – compared to now, obviously, and that's a whole other discussion in terms of finances in the league. But back then, like you were saying, the league was on par with the NFL in terms of paying uh, player salaries too. There really wasn't much of a difference. And, and in fact, once upon a time, the, the Canadian dollar was stronger than the American dollar. So that helped. Uh, in the 60s, I know there were at least a few players who thought, you know, I'm going to play in Canada. One player told me, if I go to Canada, 
I'd, I'd rather go to I'd rather go to Saskatchewan than Hanoi. You just thought, okay, I'm, maybe I won't end up in Vietnam, or or just fighting over over overseas if I if I go to Canada. I think the for at least a few, the specter of the draft and the Vietnam War was was a, was an attraction to playing in Canada. Yeah, yeah, I didn't even think There's about so many that. tangents you can go on with that. And uh, back then, um, in terms of the restriction on imports, what was what was the makeup Canadians versus Americans back when you guys were kids and watching the CFL? As I recall it, um, when I started watching, there it was 10, 10 American players, and that number has gradually increased. Uh, and they had designated imports and all sorts of like your all sorts of things like that. But fundamentally, there were 10, Ameri 10 American starters, and then that just increased incrementally over t over time to where there's now 17. Uh, that uh, uh, that's, uh, but yeah, I think I correct me if I'm wrong, Don, but I think the number back when we were watching was 10. When we were I think, starting. With I think you're right. I think back in the fifties, it was five and then it moved up to seven and it slowly incremented its way up. The other thing that I think happened in the sixties and I do the tie cats really took advantage of this is that, some certain players became non-imports after an amount of time. And so they could have more imports because they had these Americans that had become non-imports because they played in the league long enough. Ron Lancaster played as a, basically as a Canadian for, for more, 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 most of his time in, in Saskatchewan, despite the fact that he, he was from Clareton, Pennsylvania, was spent technically as a Canadian. Because after, I think it was after five years, he spent five years with the same team. They just, they grandfathered you and made you a Canadian. And uh, which I don't think is a bad idea. It rewards uh, rewards loyalty, and uh, and uh, on both sides. And uh, so that skewed it a bit. But in 1951, I don't remember what the import restriction was then. But there was a dispute because the Rough Riders had an excellent halfback by the name of Bob Sandberg, and they went to the they went to the Grey Cup against Ottawa. And uh, there was a dispute over the status of of Bob Sandberg, whether whether. Um, I think there was a debate that he gave or a case to be made that he gave them more American players than were permissible. So Bob Sandberg didn't play in that 51 Grey Cup because there was a dispute over his status. And uh, I think, yeah, and I think the overall number back then would have been like five, six or seven. It was, they were, they were very selective in who they brought over, but who they, the ones they did bring over a lot of times, it would be very familiar to American sporting fans like Glenn Dobbs was the writer's quarterback in 1951 and he was a Heisman Trophy candidate at the University of Tulsa in 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 the, four, in the early 40s and was a first round draft choice uh you know Martin Ruby played for the New York Giants and became a legendary player up here uh, you know Max Speedy who was inducted into the Pro Football Hall of Fame uh, I think in 2019 spent one season with the Rough Riders uh, at the, the tail end of his career so there's all sorts of stories like that Wow. And Ron Lancaster, just talking about NFL and that, did Ron Lancaster ever get recruited? Did did the NFL ever come calling for him Do you, that you're aware no. of? Not that I'm aware. No, his, he, uh, went, he, was, he started with Ottawa. That's where he got uh, picked up first. I told you she'd be bombing the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he showed up in Ottawa with a leg another legendary quarterback, Russ Jackson. Yeah. And after a few years together, it was decided that they couldn't keep both of them. And so they sent Ronnie back into Regina. Okay. You know, it's interesting. When we were starting our show, we did our trailer on that. And people had listened to it, and they heard the names of Lancaster and Jackson. Football people down here. 
Like, who are they? I go, well, then you're going to need to listen to our show as we go along and we talk about these guys. So, but I've always wondered with Ron Lancaster, with his talent, I, I just assume that he just turned the NFL down and said, no, I'm going to play up here. Well, I think NFL size, Sorry, go ahead, Don. Uh, I think size had a lot to do with it. Really? I think Ronnie Lancaster was not a tall man. Oh, okay. Five, nine and three quarters. If really? In, in, in cleats with very high spikes. <laughs> really? Uh, so he was, he was, he was Kyler Murray size. Yeah. Yes, they call he him still is. Yeah. Yeah. It just, uh, and, and a bit of the, well, a bit of the same style. I mean, Ronnie late in his career wasn't much of a runner, obviously, but he was a real nimble, you know, runner. more like he was sort of a Fran Tarkenton type early in his career. Oh, okay. And would buy all sorts of time in the, in the pocket. And uh, George Reed actually had an NFL opportunity. Actually the Denver Broncos in the late sixties wanted to, uh, uh, signed George and uh, the money was okay, but he, uh, he stood to make more money playing in Canada because he also had a, a, a job with a local brewery. And uh, wow. so they would have really had to make it, made it worth his, worth his while to leave. And he just, he thought it was wiser to stay. Yeah. Well, well and you know, talk and talking about, and talking about that in terms of what I love about the CFL is everybody work, plays in the CFL has to have a, a job in the off season of some sort to make ends meet. And so to me, I always describe it as a working man's league. I think it is. That's I mean, a fair the fans are earning more than players. Yeah. In so. some cases. Yes. But, but it is, it, you, you come to Canada a little bit for the money, but a lot of it because you love to play football. Right. Right. Yeah. That's in, in describing, again, describing CFL football and Canadian football to people it is very much from what I've seen and what I know, it's a lo- for the love of the game. Yes, the money is nice, but the players up there, and a lot of them are up there, and you guys I'm sure would agree with me, are up there to get noticed by the NFL. But then there are those that just love playing football. Well, the Riders have a quarterback right now named Isaac Harker. He went to the Colorado School of Mines. And now has a master's. He's got a master's degree at age 23. And he's making – probably high five figures in the CFL as a, as, a, as a backup quarterback, decent money. But Isaac Harker, once he just, when he decides to start a career, if he decides to start a career that has nothing to do with football, stands to become a very wealthy person because he's ridiculously smart. And uh, it just, he's got a master's degree. I mean, he could, it's an, that career could be an absolute vault for him, but he's probably costing himself money by playing the Canadian football. Like he loves it. He loves football. Well, he loves being here. He's one of the nicest people that's ever played for this team. And uh, it's a total love of the game story with Isaac Harker. Uh, there's a guy with a master's degree, and he's putting that on hold. Well, why else does a player play until he's almost 40? <laughs> you've got to love the game. You've got to love the atmosphere yeah. of the field. You've got to love your locker room. It's just it's a, it's a world unto itself. And I think for a lot of people, it's hard to let go because that's all they've known from high school. Right. Right. And it's tough when the game doesn't love you back sometimes. And, and there's there's a lot of stories in Saskatchewan and other places where even players who are icons with uh, with teams, the, the exit isn't always friendly. The exit isn't always amicable. Uh, Darren Durant. Yeah, Darren Durant, Aaron Rodgers. I mean, yeah, you know, uh, Brett Favre um, goes on and on. And, uh, you know, Joe Montana didn't finish with the 49ers and Joe Namath didn't finish with the Jets. And sometimes it gets ugly. And uh, the four Grey Cup winning starting quarterbacks in Saskatchewan Fighters history, Ron Lancaster, Kent Austin, Kerry Joseph, Darian Durant, were all booed 
at one point in their tenures with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders. Hard to believe, but that's that's the way it goes in professional sports. Yeah, yeah, you see very few guys go out the way they want to. I mean, Peyton Manning was kind of the the exception to that rule, even John Elway. But it, you but know, even if you look about at, the Broncos, <laughs> but even but even if you look at Peyton Manning, he got yeah. moved out of Indianapolis. Right. Right. And I know here so in Chicago, the, Chicago is a place where quarterbacks go to die. Basically, uh, careers go to die. <laughs> careers go to die. Um, it's whatever it, happened to Bob Avellini? <laughs> well, Bob Avellini, I'm proud. I am proud to say, Bob. Well, Bob Avellini does live around here. Last I saw his name in the newspaper, it was for a DUI, uh, and that was not too long ago. I think that was about a year ago. But I do know he is on my computer. He's on my simulation football team. He is the backup to my Kenny Stabler in my action PC uh, sim league that I'm currently in right now. <laughs> that sounds fun. It is very fun. But the, the, the thing, you know, we're getting off topic here, but the frustration I have about the sim leagues is there are no Canadian sim leagues except the tabletop one that I'm in amongst uh, some of the guys from uh, the, uh, the turf district. Um, Red, white, uh, Joe Pritchard over at Red, uh, the Rouge, white and blue. Um, Rod Villa Gomez at the Wood Cookie Sawcast and um, Doug Ballinger over at the Argos Fancast. So we're all in this in the sim league, but we're we're in a league right now where we're playing kind of like the late '80s. We're playing '80s, '90s, and 2000 teams. When we get off, when we start our next season, I think we may be going back further in time. So the Rough Riders will be probably duly represented. Well, a friend of mine, Kevin Mitchell, he's a sports editor at the Saskatoon Star Phoenix and a national newspaper award-winning writer. And he's got an old sim game uh, that includes an early 1980s Rough Riders. And I am just dying to play that game with him because he's got uh, he's got uh, the Joey Walters 1981 card. Oh, wow. Like 91 catches for 1,715 yards and 14 touchdowns in 16 games. Still the Riders' single-season receiving yardage record. And right. uh I would just love to play a, a board game that has the Joey Walters peak season in it. So I've got well, a game of Stratomatic football downstairs. I'm itching to play that again now that some of the pandemic uh, restrictions have been lifted. Me and my great friend Dylan Aris, are a big Ryder fan, are going to dive into some Stratomatic football again. I grew up loving Strato football. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, when we get a- on, when we're when we go after we end here and offline. Well, before we let you go, um, we I will get you all the information you need about the sim games, the Canadian one that we're playing, and also the computer one that I'm playing, which uh, oh, is yes, uh, you. you will, yeah, yeah. But you know, talking. I mean, so let's talk talking about the heroes of the past in terms of who among are there? Do they have they remained? A lot of them remain. Have a lot of them remained in Saskatchewan? Up in Regina, um, a lot have. Um, you know, Ed McQuarter's one of the greatest defensive linemen in Canadian footballing history. Still lives up here. George Reed okay. still lives up here. Uh, you know, Ronnie remained in Canada after. Yeah. Uh, after I mean, he went, went on to become a coach and a broadcaster and right. etc. Um, it was a very comfortable home for for a lot of them. And it, a lot of them during their it doesn't happen so much now, but a lot of the American players held down full time jobs during football season in Saskatchewan, mm. so they became so wow. entrenched in the community. Now it's 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 not as prevalent. You don't find as many American players staying up here. It's usually a six month 
Okay. Uh, Tennessee, and then they head back down south. But there are a few. Uh, Weston Dressler, a terrific receiver for the Riders, for a long time, he ended up, uh, you know, staying in Saskatchewan. Yeah. You know, living in living here year round. He now he's now moved to the, to, to the United States. But there were a lot of there's still a, a handful of examples, I think. Okay. But it used to be a lot more widespread than it is now. Yeah, I know. For me, back this is about six years ago. Peter King did a whole article, series of articles on the CFL and Sports Illustrated. I don't know if you ever read it. Yeah. Did you meet Peter King when he was up there, him and his crew with uh, the Monday morning quarterback? No, they actually let him in the dressing room before the regular media was allowed to go, the traditional local media was allowed to go in. So by the time we went in to do our interviews, Peter King was in and out. Oh, wow. (laughs) Okay. So uh, we heard rumors that he was in town and what he did was exceptional, but they, uh, um, they gave him some uh, privileges that weren't accorded to some of the uh, oh wow old rivals. But then again, he's Peter King; he deserves them. So yeah, yeah. No, before uh, before you guys came online with me, I was kind of reviewing that. It's one of my favorite Sports Illustrated articles, and it's all. I mean, I love all things Canada, and when that first came out, I was entranced and like. And again, that this was a frustrating part back when this article was done is right when the. CFL was starting to get some TV time down here. So, and since then the CFL is, is every, every season game is on, whether it be on regular cable or on streaming service. Um, so in talking about that, and we got about 15 minutes to go here and I know Rob, you're going to, you got to head out to, uh, to training camp here in a little bit. So let's talk about where we're at right now and kind of the future where things are going with the league. And we'll try not to use the X word, while we're talking about it but in the last 20 for the 21st century where do you think we're at with the cfl and how do we all all of us fans help make this league better go moving forward get your kids interested (laughs) they need they need a job there's a lost generation yeah and uh and that's that's been a perennial problem for the cfl it seemed for a while that they were becoming a little cooler and uh, we saw a younger demographic trending here in Saskatchewan, but again, it's, 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 uh, uh, there's, I feel like I'm one of the younger people who support that, you know, who follows the team uh, and I'm 57. It just, it, uh, you've got to engage the younger crowd and, uh, and uh, they've got to get embedded uh, in, in the communities again. I think they've let that go. And, and then they've got to, they've got to get young people hooked. And, and there's a huge, you know, number of kids playing tackle football, flag football, touch football in Canada. And they've got, they, they've got an audience of, or a potential audience of, of young kids that that's uh, de- already declaring an interest in, in football. Now the CFL has got to find a way to engage those kids and make sure that they're as interested in the Canadian football league as they are, as they are in the, in Patrick Mahomes, as they are in playing tackle flag or touch. Yeah. Uh, those kids already have a predisposition to enjoy football, but they, the CFL, hasn't done what's required resources being part of an issue to right. ensure that, that those people, those kids who are interested in football are have an accompanying and, and uh, enduring interest in the Canadian football league. Right. And in terms of uh, rough rider uh, involvement in the community, what's it like there compared to say, you know, BC, well, obviously BC and Toronto being, being other examples, but say compared to like Winnipeg or even Edmonton and Calgary. I think, with Saskatchewan, again, it's tough because we're 
it's almost like pre-COVID, post-COVID. Right, right. Pre-COVID, the Rough Riders would hold their training camp two and a half hours north in Saskatoon. Oh, okay. And that would get the northern part of the province engaged. So that would be North oh, okay. Balfour, Prince Albert, Humble, places like that. And I think that was huge because that brought that team closer to a part of the fan base. Admittedly, I have to drive three hours to every game to get there. So if you're going to engage with those people, you've got to give something to them. And one of the things you can do is have your training camp. And, and people really responded well to it. And you would see all ages at these camps. It wasn't just, you know, the, the octogenarians. It was young kids there. They were yeah. looking at their idols. I think, too, the Elks have sort of started on something which is, I think, very smart. Other than the fact that the Elks do a lot of work with minor football in Edmonton. They they. They invest heavily in it. But the thing that they're doing at the stadium is they're making it more affordable family entertainment so that drinks, concessions, etc., like that are becoming cheaper for younger adults. And I think that's part of the way that you can engage. Get the kids at least in the stadium once. Get them that experience. And maybe they can't come every week, but as, as income avails, later in life they might be more engaged to show up. Right. Right. It's not cheap to go to a CFL game or a Rough Rider game. I mean, it's cheaper than going to an NHL game in a lot of cases, but it's still a considerable expenditure. If you're going to take, let's say, uh, a husband and wife are going to take their two kids, that's a big investment uh, just for tickets. And then you look at the concession prices, et cetera, and, and that's a pretty uh, pretty steep price for one football game. And uh, uh, you know, some of the concessions, you almost need to, need to get a pre-approved loan to be able to buy a hot dog. And so uh, they've got to do some things to make – uh, the costs more manageable uh, because I think they're pricing a lot of the fans out of it, uh, out of, uh, out of being able to uh, actively support the. I look at the 2019 season with the Saskatchewan Rough Riders, they finished first. They had a charismatic, charismatic quarterback, Cody Fajardo in a new stadium and their attendance decreased from the previous year. They had a game uh, to play they, their final home game in 2019. If they win it, they get first place in the West and that does not happen very often. And they were 4,000 short of a sellout. There may be myriad reasons. There are myriad reasons for that. But I wonder if the economics of going to a Rough Rider game, combined with the convenience of just being able to sit at home and watch it on a 498-inch television in your den, uh, are really are really threatening the uh, business model of the Canadian Football League, not only in Saskatchewan, but elsewhere. Right. And so you've got to, you've got to work doubly, triply hard, triply, is that a word? A hard to, <laughs> to get people in there. And I think cost is becoming an impediment. Yeah, uh, uh, it's uh, they've got to do something to, to you know, the, the Regina Pats hockey team has a deal where Wednesdays are wiener Wednesdays. You want to get two hot dogs for like a yeah. buck or something or five bucks or something like that. And uh, um, they've got to have something built into the uh, the the economics of or the pricing of going to a game that makes it enticing to go where you're not looking at it and thinking, is this game going to cost me 500 bucks? Right. You know, and you, when you're and, and like you hit on when you're a family. And there's limited funds. And if you're paying, and I don't know what, I'm only, I only know what tickets down here cost. And I know it's expensive just to have bleacher seats, say in Wrigley Field. And so comparing, you know, I've talked to people and they said, well, the, the, there's a reason why the prices are set that way. But if you're not filling those seats and selling those tickets, then why not lower those prices? Especially, you know, if, the Elks, few two seasons ago, lowered the pro, had people in had the beer garden if I if I remember correctly, and that 
made a huge difference, at least in a couple games. There was a quite big bump in the attendance. Could the riders do something like that? I know there's, uh, I think that one pair, the part, the end zone at uh, up there at Mosaic. Could they, I mean, have they done something like that, similar to what Edmonton did? I'm not sure if they have, but it's it's certainly worth considering. You know, you don't want to make beer so cheap. Well, I that, was just going to say, you don't want to be, uh, do dollar beer night. That, that that invites all other kinds of problems. But I, 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 but you I could have a happy hour. Right. I think you got to make it irresistible for, for parents to bring their kids. you got to make it yes. so uh, so uh, enticing for them to bring the kids. And, you know, the kids are going to eat more concessions than the parents are. So, right. the, you know, it's, it's uh, in a lot of cases. So once, you, once you're done with popcorn and and, and, and hot dogs, yeah. that's a lot of money. Yeah. And, well, uh, even, yeah. Well, I mean, it goes to it, what I was saying with the Elks, though. They are dropping the prices on right. on those items such that if you're under the age of, say, 12, I'm, I may be wrong. Yeah. But it might be a buck for a for a burger, a, a buck for a Coke and a, and a buck for fries and you're done. You know, yeah. this is what they're kind of pushing is trying to get this more economically feasible for those people so that they can yeah. come to the game and not necessarily break the bank. I don't know that CFL football is super expensive compared to the other pro sports, but it is a hit. Right, right. And there's also, too, that I would say there's also that Bill Veck model that Bill Veck did when he was a baseball owner. And trying to get as many people into the stadium, he would pull out all the stops, no matter how gimmicky it was, including, you know. Disco putting- demolition night. Yes. And there's, there's uh, the future. Yeah, that uh, that was an interesting night. I remember as a kid, you know, <laughs> go, going off here watching the news. Uh, and back then, the White Sox were on Channel 44, a high UHF station. So nobody really watched them. So, uh, but yeah, that didn't end well. So you don't want something like that. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, but in terms the, of just getting people into the stadium, uh, it's the it CFL, the CFL has to, I think, now that they've gone through this COVID yeah. experience. They've got to decide what they're going to be. Right. They either go bigger or they, I don't know if they can stay at the same level. I, they, it's just so, the economics are just not there. Right. And it's not necessarily player salaries that are the issue or stadium rentals. I, I do believe that the cost of travel, the cost of uh, food, everything else that's associated with uh, health care, it, it, it just goes up and up and up. And the CFL has got to either Diversify even further. They're talking about C218, which is supposed to help the coffers. But the other thing, too, is what other things in your portfolio can you bring? Why, why not invest more heavily in merchandising? Right. There's there's an, an opportunity there. The riders under Jim Hobson were selling uh, merchandise at the rate greater than any of the pro hockey teams. Right. Well, and, you know, even talking about that, you guys can help me out on this because you guys probably know more. But anytime on Twitter I bring up the issue of a football, a video football game, I've been told that it would cost too much to, to develop a Madden type football game for the C, for the Canadian game. And so, have you guys talked to people? I mean, what have people told you about a video game? Because I know after we leave here and a little bit later, I am taking a PlayStation down to my nephew's to play Madden because that's what he wants to do with his uncle Greg. So is there, what have you guys been told about just in terms of getting younger people in the issue of the video game? Have people told you kind of the same thing? Yeah. Just that it's cost prohibitive. 
Um, but that just it's all there's also a cost of not doing it because that's a way to engage the younger fans. And right. I play Madden remotely with my godson all the time. The way I the way my teams perform, I'm basically the chance of the chance of winning is pretty remote as it is. <laughs> but but we play Madden all the time, and that's 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 a lot of kids' introduction to football. Right. It's the National Football League in Madden. I used to have a CFL game where you could spin a dot. There was a one little dial. It was a it was a board. And there was a one little dial you could spin for run, one for pass, and one for kick. Yeah. And uh, I used to play that all the time. And uh, and uh, at least there was a CFL game of some sort back then. There, right. There's nothing for them to do. And they, a lot of kids just default to following the NFL because of Madden. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, you know, there was a, a yeah, there was a CFL game, our Canadian game that came out for the PlayStation in the last few years. But unfortunately, and the company has gone under and, but the graphics were about 20 years kind of out of date. So there's been a, been an attempts and, you know, I know, but yeah, like you said, in terms of there's a cost of not doing things. And I think that's kind of where we're at now with the CFL. At what point are investments made by these owners? And that's really on the owners at this point to grow their investments. You got to build it brick by brick too. I mean, yeah. the, the video game's pretty grandiose and, and and a massive enterprise, but like you can't lose sight of the fundamentals, and that is what I feel has been done. Right. I think a, a certain even in Saskatchewan, as, as much as they do, I think for a while, and I think there's still evidence of, of it now. They take the fans for granted a bit, and they just kind of presume people are always going to go. Uh, they, they close what practices are generally open to the public. But uh, a number of years ago, they decided they were going to close one practice a week to the public. Now, I remember I was standing outside the stadium one day and this this uh, chatting with somebody and um, and this gentleman and his young son were walking toward the practice and he, he, they were from out of town. And he said, are the riders practicing today? And I said, yes, they are. But it's close to the public today. And but he went toward the entrance anyways to see if he could get in. And I remember two minutes later. Him and his son were walking out looking really sad. Mm. And I thought, they've just lost those people. Yeah. You know, that's, it's only one example, but that's the mindset that, that existed. It just, you know, what's the harm in letting people in to watch practice, but the paranoia of coaches sometimes, sometimes yeah. trumps the business, uh, the business side of it. And I just, I remember, I remember the look on that guy's face on the, the kid looks so sad. And it's just like, I wouldn't blame that kid if he went home and bought a Pittsburgh Steelers hat. Right. Yeah. What's the harm in letting a guy and his kid into practice? But that's the mindset. They've got to get away from from allowing football operations to supersede the business side and, and the goodwill element of the game. And that's what they've done. They've sometimes there's there's shades of the NFL paranoia. They think they're the NFL and they conduct themselves in a manner that's that's at arm's length with the fans. Yeah. They can't afford to do that here, but they do it. And it's to their detriment. And I and they're still they're still going to close one practice a week. Why? Invite people in and have a concession there and have have a mascot and have have prizes and have autograph sessions after every practice. Instead of just having letting the games be the the occasion, make the practices an occasion. Make them welcoming yeah. and, and you bring your kids in. And it doesn't cost you can you can bring your kids in. It doesn't cost you a cent to go watch Cody Pajardo throw a football. Right. You don't have and to. That, and, and that and, and that minimal investment will pay go off hang. 10, 20, 30 years from now. Exactly. Candy is back. Oh, oh, well, gentlemen, on that note, <laughs> with Candy back, uh, licking her dad, and uh, she's uh, she's a happy dog. She's a happy dog. I love dog. her so much. <laughs>
Gentlemen, where can we find you? Uh, Don, let's start with you. And uh, where can we find you uh, with uh, the podcast and everything else? The podcast is Third Down Gamble, and we usually have about an episode a week, sometimes two. And you can follow us at, at Third Down Gamble on Twitter and myself at DJ Char on Twitter. And uh, you can, with thanks to my dog, I, I have a podcast, P-A-W-E-D. Um, I'm at uh, leaderpost.com. And uh, on Twitter, I'm at, at Rob Vanstone, R-O-B-V-A-N-S-T-O-N-E. Or I'm at wherever Candy wants to go for a walk. So okay. you well, find me in the park. Well, gentlemen, I appreciate it uh, for being on. And stand by after uh, I hit the stop button here. We'll talk a little bit more. And Rob, I will get you, Rob and Don, I will get you all the information you need in terms of how to play simulation football. Joey Walters, number 17. Yes. Awesome. Thank you guys for joining me. Bye-bye. Thank you for your walk. Bye-bye. And the Bye-bye. dog. <laughs> Cheers, everybody. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Sports History fan, this is Arnie Chapman, aka the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. 
Hello, football friends. This is Darren Hayes of the Pigskin Dispatch Podcast, and I'd like to invite you to the portal of positive football history, Pigskin Dispatch and pigskindispatch.com. We talk about everything that centers around the game of American football, expert discussions, the origins of the games, the great players, teams, and coaches, and more, and some great guests and insights from experts. We have new episodes three to four times a week, and you can find us on sportshistorynetwork.com, pigskindispatch.com, or your favorite podcast provider. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.